But basically what it says is both the A1C and the GMI are imperfect. Both of them can vary. In fact, they found that 28% of measurements can vary up to half a percent. So in other words, it is not at all unusual if that A1C may have been reading lower than maybe it truly was. Hi, and welcome to the Solving Type 2 Diabetes Podcast. I'm Tom, and I'll be your host as I share what I'm doing in my daily life to solve my type 2 diabetes. Listen in as I share the food, movement, and tools that I'm using each day. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. For a full transcript or to follow the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast on social media, please head over to solvingtype2diabetes.com for all those links and more. Now, on to the show. Well, I hope you are having a great week. Before I get too far into my week, I would like to ask you a favor. I'd like you to please share this episode, this podcast, with someone that you care about, someone that you think might benefit from it. Maybe they have type 2 diabetes or prediabetes, or maybe they care for someone with type 2 diabetes. Either way, if you could share this podcast with one person this week, I would greatly appreciate it. So it's been in real time, two weeks since I've done a recording, and in fake time, it's only been a week since the last episode came out, but a lot has happened in the two weeks since I recorded this last episode. Most recently, we just got back from Walt Disney World a couple days ago, uh, had a great time at Walt Disney World. We stayed at Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge, Kadani Village, which is the DVC, the Disney Vacation Club Villas. I was there with my oldest daughter and two grandkids, and the two grandkids were 3 and 13, so quite a difference there in age. In fact, the youngest is only going to be three in a couple of weeks. So we slipped in without having to buy a ticket. At three years old, you have to buy a ticket, but because she was just under three, we were able to get by without that. So yeah, great week at Disney. We did Epcot, Hollywood Studios, Magic Kingdom, and of course, Animal Kingdom. And they had a great time. Got some time in at the water parks as well. So that was a really fun trip. The only downside was that American Airlines, a shout out to American Airlines, did not manage to get my bag on the second plane. And I was able to get on without any problem, but the bag didn't make it. So I got that the following morning. Well, before the Disney visit, and a couple days after I recorded the last episode, I had a visit with my doctor. I had mentioned this previously that I had an upcoming doctor's appointment and I was very interested to see how that went. I knew ahead of time what my lab results were be, but I didn't announce them here. So my A1C that I had taken now, it's been about four weeks ago, three or four weeks since I had the actual A1C blood draw, but it was 5.0. 
Now, about six months ago, before I started the Manjaro, it was 6.0. And about six months before that, it was 7.0. So it has been coming down. In my opinion, it's been coming down very nicely. However, that opinion was not shared by my doctor. She seemed almost upset that my A1C was 5.0. Now, I had not expected that. When I first saw the lab results, I was a little surprised myself because the GMI on my continuous glucose monitor, the calculated, the estimated equivalent of an A1C that's done by your continuous glucose monitor, that was saying it should have been about 5.7. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later, the reliability of an A1C test versus the reliability of a GMI from your continuous glucose monitor. But I'll just stick with the doctor visit for now. But basically, she said that she was concerned that if my A1C continued to drop, that I could become hypoglycemic. In other words, have low blood sugar. And I've never been anywhere near having low blood sugar. In fact, my blood sugar during those same 90 days was averaging right around 98 to 100 over a 90-day period. That was the average blood glucose that my CGM was recording. And there's absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, having an average blood glucose, you know, around 98 to 100 is absolutely fabulous. That is right in the middle of the very healthy range. But evidently, it was too good for her. So during my doctor's visit, she literally gave me the ultimatum of either having to quit taking Farsiga or having to quit taking Manjaro. And we'll talk about that a little bit later when I give my Manjaro update. She was not at all interested in hearing that, you know, my weight loss had leveled off. I was no longer really losing weight, maybe just a little bit, not much at all, and that my average glucose readings have leveled off. They were not going any lower. She was not interested in that at all. In fact, you know, even I eat very low carbs still. She was not interested in maybe giving me the option of eating an average amount, a normal amount of carbohydrates. Didn't want to hear any of that and literally said that she was removing the Farsiga from my prescription list. In other words, I couldn't go to the pharmacy and ask for a refill or she would remove the Manjaro. So I said, don't, please don't remove the Manjaro because, you know, that's helping with a multiple things. It's helping, you know, with my appetite suppression, obviously. It's helping with my sense of being full. It's definitely giving me great A1C blood sugar control, evidently for my doctor, too great. So I, I said, you know, if you have to stop something, and I would, I, I, we had a, I'm going to say a 20-minute debate over this. And finally, I said, fine, you know, drop the Farsiga. So that's what she did. And, uh, you know, really left me with no choice. The only thing I could really do would be to seek out a new doctor. And I still might do that. But what she said is that she would stop the Farsiga and Instead of waiting six months, I would go back in three months, and she would check the A1C again. Now, to me, and I'm going to rant here a little bit because, well, I can do what I want. But to me, this is a little ridiculous. To go off a single A1C reading that is not even bad. It's just very good. And to then make medication changes without first 
seeing if it's a trend, seeing, you know, it, was it a one-time anomaly? Was it even accurate? And we'll talk about that in a little bit here as well. But for right now, I am no longer taking Farsiga. The only medication that I'm taking right now for my type 2 diabetes is Manjaro. So that's how that went. Even just talking about it now, even though it was a full two weeks ago that I had this appointment, well, two days short of two weeks, it was 12 days ago. Even now talking about it, I'm still really upset. And that's how I left the office. It was quite upset. And uh, But uh, at, in this country, at this time, you know, a person cannot determine their own medications. And I'd say 99% of the time, that's a good thing. But we have to beg and plead for the medications we think we need. And what's ironic is both the Farsiga and the Manjaro are both medications that I had to suggest to my doctor. The only thing she offered up on her own was the metformin, which, you know, has now gone by the wayside. So there we are. That was, I guess, my week in review. Also, for my numbers this week, I have absolutely no numbers to report. One of the things she said when we were debating that, you know, the GMI of 5.7, the A1C of 5.0, and telling her how many grams of carbohydrates I was eating, and, you know, I was really trying to share all this data that I collect on a daily basis. And she said, and this is a quote, Tom, you're too focused on the numbers. Now, to me, this is very ironic. This diagnosis of type 2 diabetes is based solely on numbers. It's the amount of average glucose you have. It's the amount of affected hemoglobin you have, glycated hemoglobin you have in your blood. It's all numbers. It's all based on lab results. That is the diagnosis. So to tell me that I'm too focused on numbers, to me that was irony at its best. So what am I doing? Well, I tried for about a week, ended yesterday, I tried for about a week not to track numbers. I did not, I intentionally did not set my watch to record exercise. I did not use my fitness pal. I did not even wear a CGM. And all that to say is I really did not like it. I don't like having those numbers. So that little experiment of mine lasted a week. I'm back with a CGM. I'm back filling out my fitness pal. I will have full numbers for you next week. So sorry, doc, but I do focus on the numbers. And you know, really, for the last year or so, it's really served me well. For my Manjaro update, not much to say there on that front. I still am at the 7.5 milligram dose. And I have uh, enough of that. I didn't have to ask her for a refill. I have enough of that left. I should have a couple more months with it here. And uh, what she did say, though, is to email her in six weeks with my average blood glucose readings from my CGM, which is ironic because she did not want to trust or listen to what the CGM was saying because that was suggesting that my real GMI or A1C equivalent was 5.7 not 5.0. But she asked me to send her the numbers in six weeks. So until then, I am just on the Manjaro and at the 7.5 milligram dose. Like I said, for most of the time since that appointment, I was not tracking any numbers. I am back tracking again because I just honestly could not tolerate not knowing what was going on in my body. So I'll have more information 
for you on that coming up. Well, that pretty much describes my challenge and win for the week as well. Not tracking those numbers was quite challenging. And quite frankly, I did not win. I don't like it. I like knowing, measuring what I'm eating. I like knowing what my blood sugars are doing in response to that. I like knowing that I got in proper levels of exercise, closing my rings, you know, five or six days a week. And I probably did close my rings, but again, I didn't. I intentionally did not turn that on to record that. So I did not win at not tracking my numbers, so I am now back to tracking my numbers. And for me personally, tracking them, that's the win. All right, enough about me. Let's take a look at the news. I do have some good articles for you here. And I guess this is the episode of irony, but ironically, this first article here has to do with continuous glucose monitors. And the article's entitled, and I did not cherry pick this, this just came up and I saw it, Continuous Glucose Monitors May Diagnose Prediabetes Earlier Than Blood Sugar Tests. Now this is interesting here. While prediabetes itself is not, you know, a negative diagnosis of something being wrong, it is indicative of something going wrong, trending in the wrong direction, because the vast majority of people who at one point in their life are pre-diabetic, in other words, they have an A1C that's, let's say, bigger than 5.7, higher than 5.7, but not quite 6.4, and those people almost always, if they don't do something about it, they almost always naturally proceed up into that diabetic range, because the things that got them pre-diabetic will eventually get them diabetic. That's just a fact. So what they're saying here is that by using the continuous glucose monitor, people are more aware and more able to make the lifestyle changes that they need to make, as I found for myself, earlier. And they're able to... Now, unfortunately for me, it was not earlier. I only started wearing the CGM well into my diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. I've only been wearing it now for, I don't know, close to two years, I guess, I honestly don't remember. I think it's close to two years now I've been using a CGM. I should have been. I wish I was using one 15 years ago. Because what they're saying here is that by people having the ability to see what's going on after they eat a meal, and because nobody wants to you know, prick their finger with a lancet after every meal if they don't yet even have a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, but folks are willing to wear a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor. And what they're saying is, by having this information, these numbers, that they're able to make lifestyle changes, and as soon as they get signs of being, you know, creeping into this range of prediabetes, if they make changes then, they are very successful. And you can read the, all the numbers and all the information here, but they're very successful in never getting to the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. So what this article basically recommends are, even at the slightest hint of entering into the pre-diabetes range, if folks start wearing a CGM, now again, this costs money, and your insurance and your doctors all have to agree, but if they start wearing it, they can much more easily avoid the complications of type 2 diabetes, avoid ever even reaching into the range of type 2 diabetes. So I thought that was a very good news article. This next one is a warning from the FDA. It says, FDA issues warning about some compounded versions of semaglutide for diabetes 
weight loss. So semaglutide, known as Ozempic, or for weight loss, it's known as Wegovy. But for type 2 diabetes, and that's what we're talking about here, folks are buying compounded versions of semaglutide, the same, you know, that's, that's what Ozempic is, but it's compounded. In other words, these pharmacies add other ingredients. And the warning is that they are using the salt version just a chemically different version of semaglutide. It's not the same molecule. It's similar, but it has not been tested. So the makers of Ozempic did not test that version that they're using in these compounded medications. Because the FDA is saying that, you know, the manufacturer, the person who owns the patent, the company that owns the patent on semaglutide for Ozempic and Wegovy, they are not selling it to these pharmacies. These pharmacies are using a different version of this semaglutide that has never gone through any of these trials and tests. So read that article. If you're tempted because maybe you can't find Ozempic or it's in a shortage in your area or it's too darn expensive, just be warned. Read this article, read this warning from the FDA because what they're saying, that thing you're being sold has not been tested and is not at all the same thing as what comes in the real Ozempic. All right, this third article here is a good one. It's called The Role of Metformin in Treating Type 2 Diabetes. We have talked about metformin in the past and you may remember that it was the first medication and for many years the only medication that I was given for type 2 diabetes. But this is a good article still if maybe you did not hear those episodes, you're not familiar with metformin. But metformin basically increases the amount of blood sugar, glucose, that's able to be taken into your cells. So it helps you to unlock the gate to allow your cells to receive more of the glucose that's in your blood. You hear about being insulin insensitive. In other words, you're producing insulin, but your body, you've had so much sugar in your blood for so long, which means you have to have more and more insulin in your blood, that your body becomes unaware, insensitive to that insulin, and almost acts as if you're not producing insulin, and it doesn't let those glucose molecules into your cells. It doesn't unlock that doorway. And that's one of the main things that that metformin does. It allows you to put that sugar in your body, either in your liver or in your muscles. It allows you to get it out of your blood system and into your cells. So it's often, you know, a first-line drug. It did you know, talks about other side effects here, and usually GI side effects, honestly, is what a lot of people experience. I know I did a little bit, not too bad. And after a while, after a few weeks, you really, I think, get used to it. So it, the side effects really aren't too bad. But also, it's not a very potent or powerful drug. It usually works on folks who are just creeping into the type 2 diabetes range. It certainly, it's not a strong medication for people who have had either a very out-of-control type 2 diabetes or type 2 diabetes for a very long time. That's when I think metformin is not quite as effective. This last article says, Studies suggest exercise may help counteract genetic risk of type 2 diabetes. Now, you know, your propensity to get type 2 diabetes does have a large genetic component. I talked about my wife as an example. She's an example that I know love her very much. Oh, by the way, today is our 
35th wedding anniversary. The day I'm recording this, which is the day before it comes out, is actually our 35th wedding anniversary. So anyway, we're going to go out to dinner here later on as soon as I'm done. But we have very different genetics. It is obvious. My exercise level is dramatically higher than hers. My eating habits are what I consider to be much more healthy than hers. Yet her blood sugar has always been and continues to be perfectly fine. She has great blood pressure, great cholesterol levels. All her lab tests come back absolutely perfect. Yet if you just looked at what she ate and how she exercised, you would think that our blood work would be reversed. So that's got to be genetics. But what they're saying here is that while genetic predisposition might increase your chances of getting type 2 diabetes, there are things you can do about it. Exercise here is one of them. And it goes on to explain how even though you know you have these genetic markers, and they can test for that nowadays, you can actually check your genetic markers and see if you have a propensity for developing type 2 diabetes. But they're saying that if you get in, even with those markers, if you get in an average of an hour of moderate to vigorous physical activity each day, that's been associated with a 74% lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes. Now, these are for people who haven't had the diagnosis yet of type 2 diabetes, but they do have the genetic predisposition to get type 2 diabetes. And getting in that vigorous, moderate to vigorous exercise every day lowered their risk by 74%, which I think was you know really dramatic and is encouraging. But again, you need to know have that information ahead of time. You need to either everybody just exercises more or you can get your genetic markers tested when you're still young and healthy and vigorous, and then you can do something to either delay or prevent getting that type 2 diabetes, which I think was really interesting. Okay, let's look at the main topic for today. And today we're going to be talking about how reliable is the A1C test. Now, I pulled this as a topic a couple weeks ago after I got my blood test results online. It was before my doctor's office, before that disaster of a doctor's visit. But I knew what it was going to be. The A1C said 5.0. My GMI that I measure said, yeah, it should be about 5.7. So I was thinking, well, why? what's this huge discrepancy? Now, I'm going to link to an article here. It's actually a study. It's not an article. It's from the National Institutes of Health. And the name of the study is entitled, A View Beyond HbA1c, Role of Continuous Glucose Monitoring. And that's on PubMed at NIH. And so the link will be there. It'll be below the news links in the show notes. And you can read all about it. But basically what it says, and I'm going to summarize this here. I've already been talking pretty long. But basically what it says is both the A1c and the GMI are imperfect. Both of them can vary. In fact, they found that 28% of measurements can vary up to half a percent. So in other words, it is not at all unusual if that A1C may have been reading lower than maybe it truly was. They found that when they did two and then three 
A1C tests back-to-back, and there are also different methods of conducting the A1C test. There is not just one gold standard. There's different lab procedures that can be done with, with calculating the A1C. They said it took three tests in a row, and then to average that out, to truly get a very reliable and accurate A1C. But if you just took a single A1C in 30 or 28% of the cases, it could vary by 0.5. So in the English system, you know, we do, you know, 6.4 and above is type 2 diabetes, 5.7 to 6.4 is prediabetes, and below 5.7 is normal. And it goes down to about 4. Anything below 4, yes, that's hypoglycemic. But they're saying that it can be off by up to 0.5 in about almost a third of the cases. Likewise, the GMI is simply a calculation. It might not truly represent the affected hemoglobin in your blood. So the A1C could be low or high. The GMI could be low or high. But they're not going to very often at all, and almost by chance, match. So my GMI prior to my appointment showed 5.7. You know, and that was over the course of 90 days. The A1C test, 5.0. Neither one of them are or should be expected to be perfect and exact. They say where the A1C is good at, and again, if you really, this is a very lengthy, in-depth article, a whole lot of math, but they're saying that it's really only above 7.0 where the A1C is very useful. Because honestly, even at 7.0, if you're off by up to 0.5, well, that's still in the type 2 diabetes range. And when you get higher, Honestly, the side effects between 9, 9.5, they're going to be the same. You know, they're not dramatically different as that number changes. But when you start to get lower, well then, yeah, you know, if, if the A1C says, I don't know, 6, well, that could be anywhere from 5.5, which is, you know, normal, to 6.5, which is type 2 diabetes. So... It's not that precise, but yet people take it to be exact and precise. Now, if you previously have an A1C of 11, which I did a few years ago, and now you have an A1C of 6, well, then that's a dramatic, a definite improvement. But to say, oh, my A1C is currently 7.2, and three months ago it was 7.4, well, the truth of the matter is, it could be identical to what it was before, just measured differently, just a different procedure inside the lab. You know, it's not that accurate. So that's something I think it's important for folks to know that you can't bet the farm on your individual specific A1C reading. Now, no insurance is going to pay for you to have three A1C tests, you know, a couple days apart. They're not going to pay for it. If you really wanted to, they do have over-the-counter A1C tests at pharmacies, but Again, that's not really what you should be worried about, what your exact number is. Although my doctor seemed quite reactionary to having one specific number. But if I were doing this myself, I would just look at the long term, check it every three to six months, 
and, you know, go from there. But of course, I can't recommend that for you. Not a doctor, not an endocrinologist or anything else like that. So take it for what you will. But if I were running the world, I wouldn't focus on a single number. Read the article. It's a good one. Talks about the use of CGM and the calculated GMI and also, you know, why that A1C test itself may or may not be particularly accurate on any given day. Okay, let's look at your questions. And we do have a couple of questions, a few questions from Stephen from Glendale. Hey, Stephen, how you doing? I'm going to read through these and I'm going to interrupt Stephen during the questions because he's got a few different parts here. So I want, I'm not going to remember them all. So I'm, as I get to it, I'm going to pause and then give a few answers along the way. So let's go ahead with Stephen's question. Hi, Tom, just check in to see how your doctor's visit went. Well, now you know for sure, Stephen, how it went. <laughs> so does everybody else. He goes on to say, I had my blood work done on Friday, June 2nd. I was curious to see how my A1C compared with the GMI of the Libre 3. The Libre 3 said my GMI was 6.5 over 30 days. I've only had the Libre 3 for about six weeks. And my A1C was 6.6. Okay, I'm going to stop there. So your GMI was 6.5 over 30 days, but the A1C was 6.6 over 90 days. So it's very important to keep that in mind. So it's really difficult to compare a 30-day GMI to a 90-day A1C. You should really wait until you have 90 days worth of data. Having said that, those are both good numbers. That's a good, good thing, Steve. My wife and I were quite pleasantly surprised that they were compared favorably. And again, I'm going to caution you, you're really comparing apples to oranges with a 30-day reading versus a 90-day reading. Okay. I know 6.6 isn't something to brag about. Well, it's better. But my previous A1Cs were in the 7.2, 7.1 range. A drop of 0.6 is very exciting. Steve, I'm going to caution you here. Remember what we just said. These things can be inaccurate up to 0.5, but you're certainly trending in the right direction. So he goes, what's changed? Better dietary choices, avoiding foods that spike my sugar, like a buttered roll. Oh, he says he had two the other day and it spiked his sugar to 300. He says that was an eye-opener. Other changes were the result of listening to your podcast and some of the choices you made that helps you, like the carbs that don't seem to affect your sugar too much, and of course the Libre 3. Well, yes, I'm very happy you're using the Libre 3, and you certainly are more aware. And I don't want to poo-poo your progress. That's not my goal at all. Just take these numbers with a grain of salt and be cautious. 90-day readings are certainly better. And also having that instant feedback to me is of tremendous benefit. Like you said, you ate something that you figured might not be great, and then you saw your blood sugar spike. And to have that information, that to me is what's really valuable with this CGM. So the question is, how'd you do on your doctor visit? Okay, been there, done that. I also asked him to see if I could reduce or eliminate metformin in my regimen like you did. If it wasn't for you mentioning that, you had the Libre 3 as a type 2 diabetic like myself, I would have never pursued it. Again, because it was turned down by my insurance carrier about a year ago when I was trying to get the Libre 2. Sorry for rambling on, Tom. Oh, no worries at all. I look forward to your next Monday's podcast, Steve. Okay, so how did I do in my doctor's visit? Well, okay, we covered that, and I probably shouldn't spend any more minutes on that. 
But I'm glad you were able to get to Libre 3. I'm glad you're getting good data from it. And, uh, you know, take these comparisons between the GMI and the A1C with a grain of salt. Certainly look at that study that I linked here in the show notes for this episode. All right. Next question. You have much better, this is also from Stephen, you have much better control than I do when it comes to measuring carbs and protein. When it comes to takeout, what do you usually get? Wow, I usually don't. I'm trying to think here. I mean, once in a while, I'll get a burger. It's not often. Once in a while, once every, I'm going to say, couple of months maybe, we'll get a pizza. But like when we're traveling and my wife gets fast food at a drive through let's say we're driving somewhere, I'll have protein bars with me. I'll take a small cooler with protein shakes. I really don't have takeout or fast food that often at all. Okay, my wife and I also do a lot of our own cooking, just like you and your Mississippi pot roast. Yeah, that is a favorite, which I found too fatty. And he says here, which cut of meat do you get for the Mississippi pot roast. I don't know what cut of meat it is. I just look for a roast. I guess they have various kinds. If it does have visible fat, I'll often remove that. And uh, yeah, there is butter added to that. And I think that helps bring out some of the flavors, carries the flavor. But what I like to do is after we get one portion of the meat, and that butter is going to be down in the juices. So if you take off a portion of meat, you're just having very little of that. Also, after it cools, I'll remove that layer because the fat goes to the top. So after it's been in the refrigerator for several hours, I'll just pop that layer off, leaving all the peppers and the meat juices and the meat behind. So I think I might avoid a lot of that fat, but it also probably has to do with the cut of meat. It says here, for example, we devote one day, usually Saturday, to cook several meals for the week. My wife works the midnight shift and I work the days, so having cooked foods that we can reheat in the microwave is most convenient. Yes, I agree. So, if you order Chinese food or pizza, for example, what do you get? I'm Chinese and, of course, I like rice. The one big change I made was to get the steamed versions of foods that are on the menu and measure half a cup of brown rice. Pizza? Question mark. I like to get thin crust or cauliflower crust pizzas. My wife likes Sicilian. How about you? What are your favorite takeout choices? So again, I really don't. My wife does not like Chinese food. Well, I guess once in a while she'll eat fried rice, which I don't know how authentic that is. But so don't do a lot of takeout. Really don't do a lot of Chinese takeout, although I happen to love real good Chinese food. Love it. I I do like to cut back on the rice serving, but the meat and the veg, I think they're fabulous. With regards to pizza, again, we maybe get one every couple of months, and it's just your traditional, I guess you'll call it New York-style pizza. I did try those cauliflower crust things. I didn't care for them too much, so I'll just have a little bit of pizza, but, you know, not a lot. So I hope that helped. Stephen, keep making these good choices. And if you would like to write in or send me a comment, feedback, question, maybe tell me that I'm rambling on too long. I just looked at the timer here and I'm over 36 minutes already. There's two ways to tell me. The first is to send me an email. Just tom at solvingtype2diabetes.com. That's my email address. Or 
pop over to the solvingtype2diabetes.com website and click on feedback. Fill out that little form, send in your question, your comment, anything you'd like to, maybe a future topic, and that'll be helpful to me. I'm back to asking you my favor again. Real quick, take a second and just share this podcast with someone that you care about. That would help me a lot. So what's next? Well, I'm going to be talking more about numbers. Now, you know, my doctor says that I was focusing too much on the numbers. I tend to disagree, but let's talk about that. Do I need to count calories or macros? You know, I use MyFitnessPal. I count those things. The question is, really, do I need to for solving my type 2 diabetes? So that'll be next week. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Solving Type 2 Diabetes podcast. I hope you found it valuable. Please follow and leave a five-star review as it helps other people find the podcast. By subscribing, you ensure you won't miss the next episode. You can always get a full transcript of the episode at SolvingType2Diabetes.com. There, you will also find the links to leave feedback and links to follow on social media. I'm very interested in hearing from you with comments and suggestions. Thanks very much for listening. Please remember that everything I share is just from my own personal experience and should not be taken as medical or health advice. Please consult your own medical professionals. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only.